initiative and they say, or they lean over the drapes and say, we're falling behind, you put a bit of pressure on the aorta and the vena cava and they, and they smile again because they can actually <laughs> catch up. So uh, that's something that should be remembered as a maneuver um, in times where there's a lot of bleeding and you're trying to catch up. Welcome to episode 17 of the Ups and Gone Crit Care Podcast. Uh, hi everyone, this week I'm joined by Prof- um, Professor Yi Leong, who is the head of um, uh, gynecological oncology here uh, in WA, and um, this week's topic we're going to talk about is the um, surgical aspects of the management of uh, placenta accreta uh, and greta percreta. Um, so thanks for coming along, Yi. Hi, Roger. Thank you for asking me. Um, so we're just going to uh, sort of have a bit of a conversation and um, jump around and discuss some of the um, sort of more surgical aspects of managing these quite tricky patients. Um, so some of these um, um, questions I've got for you, uh, Yi, probably aren't necessarily your or my expertise, but I thought we should just for completion um, briefly discuss them and um, and I guess the first thing I, that I've written down here anyway is um, the imaging and diagnosis of um, patients with uh, abnormally invasive um, placenta. Um, so my impression is that uh, certainly in our centre we seem to, as, you know, the majority of these patients have ultrasound diagnosis. What, uh, what's your impression, you? Yes, I agree. Um, and I think what happens with this situation of the morbidly adherent placenta is that it is site-specific. So some uh, centres will be very much dependent on the ultrasound department because they have very, very skilled uh, sonographers and sonologists who can interpret the images as well as an MRI in other centres. If you have access to both, sometimes people use both, but, uh, or if there's uncertainty of one, you can use the other modality. So it will be very specific to the institution or the organisation that the, pres- uh, the patient presents to. Okay. And uh, I'm not sure if we can answer this one, but... Um I think most of the people who uh, get diagnosed, there's a, a sort of high degree of suspicion anyway, so they've, they've known to have a um, previous caesarean scar, and so there's a lot more um, attention paid to the, uh, to the imaging of, the, of, um, of their placenta. But what are the sort of patients uh, that, who might slip through the net? Because you, know, you can sometimes get accreta from um, uh, other types of um, uterine pathology. Yeah, is that right? Correct, yeah. So sometimes the morbidly adherent placenta will be related to previous surgery within the uterine cavity, uh, so not necessarily related to caesarean sections. And obviously the, uh, the well-known finding that uh, the more caesarean sections one has, the more likely one is going to have a morbidly adherent or uh, accreta, accreta, increta type situation. So most will be diagnosed preoperatively and uh, pre-delivery. Um, some will slip through the net, and yep. they're the ones that uh, catches out. That's exactly right, yeah. So uh, I guess anyone who's um, doing obstetric uh, practice um, could get um, caught out with one of these patients unexpectedly. Um, all right, now I've written down the timing of delivery. I know that's more of an obstetric decision, but um, I guess we should just sort of um, discuss the general principles. My, my impression is that um, it's a bit of a balance of, of, of um, different factors involving the mother and the baby. Um, do you, uh, do you want to explain 
how you understand it, Yi? Yeah, likewise. I have a fairly broad understanding of these, and the principles I use is to look at the fetal factors, the maternal factors, and the pathology itself. So from the fetal point of view, if there's no fetal compromise, you want the most mature fetus as you can get, um, and that's generally around 36, 37 weeks. Most uh, um, neonatal units would be happy with that, and we can get yep. to that. From a maternal point of view, um, obviously there's the balance of whether the, the mother is... Uh, um, symptomatic or not and that goes to the pathology so if somebody is bleeding and has recurrent antipartum hemorrhages then you're more likely to intervene earlier than if somebody is quite stable uh, if a mother has uh, hematuria that's always a very worrying and yep. that may indicate that you need to be more vigilant in terms of the uh, uh, the management of that patient yep so uh, I guess I just a quick query about the percent of accreted patients so sometimes you know you can see um, on the imaging that uh, it appears that it's already invading into the bladder and the other urological structures. So would you intervene, a bit do you think people in general will intervene a bit earlier, even if there isn't any bleeding or hematuria, just, just worrying that it could spread? Yeah, it's, it's a tricky one because in my experience, certainly uh, in this organisation, what I've found is that there is often a concern about the possibility of bladder invasion, but if you look cystoscopically, there is no real bladder invasion in the majority of these patients. So I think we have struck a nice balance with the experience we have where it would be dependent on whether the patient has uh, symptoms, yep. particularly hematuria. And if they don't, yes, we can push them to as long as we can to get the best outcome for the fetus. Yep. Okay, that's good. All right, I've now written down surgical team members. So I know this is very going to be very institution dependent. depends on um, the people you have available in your institution and obviously the experience of those people. But... Um, um, and it's more than just um, the surgical team, isn't it? So the, I guess if you wanted to, we could even discuss the whole multidisciplinary team, which mm. includes um, uh, anaesthetic and theatre staff and even neonatology and, and broader scheme. Do you have any... Um, what's your um, observation and take on this? And do you... Have, like, I don't have much experience outside Western Australia, but what do you... Uh, have you noticed any differences in other parts of the world uh, from, from talking to colleagues and things? You? Yeah, certainly. So... Again, it comes down to the local expertise. Uh, so in our organisation, the gynae oncologists have been involved in a lot of these cases. Um, two miles down the road, uh, in a private hospital, the gynae oncologists may not be involved because there may be some very experienced private gynaecologists and obstetricians yep. who are more than able to help each other in these type of situations and would then call on somebody else if the, um, the going gets tough, so to speak. Um, so it is very much dependent on where you work. Um, we've also now been involving our urogynecologist, who is a ex very experienced obstetrician gynecologist, and he has played a role in some of these cases rather than your gynecologist. Um, so there are variations in terms of how you can um, have a multidisciplinary team involved. So the take-home message is you don't need a gynecologist if you have experienced people around. Sometimes you need a urologist. So if there's a history of hematuria, it would be nice to have a urologist because taking out a part of the bladder and repairing it um, uh, is probably the, the part that causes the most bleeding. Yep. And um, if you have a experienced urologist who's happy to uh, do a partial cystectomy and repair of that uh, bladder very quickly, it helps uh, the recovery of the patient. Okay, that's good, that's interesting. Yeah. Right, so now, um a few more sort of specific questions about surgical techniques. So how, uh, from the surgical side of things, we decide on what sort of incision to use and how to deliver the baby. So I know that, you know, you can do, um, for example, midline or fan and steel incisions and the 
and uh, deciding on where to incise the uterus and how to deliver the fetus is, um, you know, var varies a bit. Mm, yeah. So the decision on incision of the skin is dependent on where you think it's going to be the most difficult part of the operation. That's just one of those basic tenets of surgery. So if you think that the operation is going to be most difficult uh, at delivering the uterus, then you're better off actually making a midline incision than, rather than trying to struggle through a low uh, a to incision. Yep. Um, and that's certainly what we would um, strongly advise. Now, whether that is followed or not, that's totally up to the, the, the people that are actually at the table. Uh, in terms of fetal delivery and uterine incision, that's, uh, again, the gynaecologist tends not to be involved in that part of the uh, procedure. The obstetrician will aim to make the incision above the placenta rather than going through the placenta, and the fetus can be delivered by a cephalic or as a breech extraction, depending on the, the lie of the fetus at the time of the caesarean uh, section. In terms of controlling the bleeding, the controlled bleeding, uh, the most important thing is, is pressure. Some people do use oxytocics, and generally I, I tend not to because of the concern about uh, placental separation. Uh, but the first thing we do is uh, deliver the baby, um, clamp the cord, and um, close the abdomen, uh, close the uterine cavity. Then you can uh, exteriorize the uterus and you have better control in terms of um, the amount of blood loss that might occur. Variations to this is that if I see there's a lot of uh, um, involvement of the low uterine segment into the bladder, I may spend some time initially um, taking down the bladder, trying to define the uterophysical fold, because again, the part that bleeds the most is the bladder bed. And if you can do that, prior to the incision of the uterine cavity and bring down the bladder as much as you can, the hysterectomy part of that operation becomes a lot easier with less blood loss. Yep. And what are the steps in sort of the devascularization of um, the structures that you're removing, i.e. The, the uterus, and, um, and then how do you change things should there be sort of like catastrophic bleeding whereby, you know, anaesthetic colleagues like myself lean over the drapes and say things are really bad here, What's, yep. what can you do to help us? Yep. So the hysterectomy part is like any standard hysterectomy, obviously uh, the part that's going to be the trickiest is the low uterine segment um, and uh, where the bladder may be uh, attached to the low uterine segment. Um, I like to exteriorize the uterus because then uh, one can put a hand behind the uterus to the lower part and below the placenta uh, because most of these are low-lying placentas and uh, as one reflects the bladder down, the uh, anterior hand can meet the posterior hand and actually work out where the cervix and the vagina is. And again, by, ex um, by traction, um, one can control the bleeding. If there's a lot of bleeding, uh, the important thing is to stop the bleeding. And it may not be actually at the point of where it's bleeding. Sometimes you have to use aortocable compression. And that um, produces a marked effect on the blood pressure. And I certainly know my colleagues up the top end are very appreciative they can actually catch up. <laughs> So uh, that's something that should be remembered as a manoeuvre um, in times where there's a lot of bleeding and you're trying to catch up. Yep, and uh, I agree. It certainly is a sort of um, a low-tech option for um, you know um, uh, replacing interventional radiology if you don't have those techniques available, which we'll, we'll get, we'll, I'll ask you um, um, to comment on in a little while. All right, that's good. So uh, I think we've discussed the use of the oxytocics and um, I wanted to sort of clarify that because it has been in my experience um, some variation on people's uh, opinions regarding that, whether or not you should give oxytocin um, at the time of delivery. And I think um, the majority of people don't if there's no bleeding because, that, as you say, we worry that that will actually cause the um, 
the percentage is separated and then that may actually cause bleeding. So um, um, uh, that seems to be our approach, but often, uh, but then sometimes we do give oxytocin if, we, if, it does, if the bleeding does occur, because we think maybe that might help tamponade things. So I'm not really sure in my mind what's the right mm. thing to do. Um, do you mind if I ask you a few questions about some sort of alternative approaches to managing patients with um, this condition? Mm. Um, like, um, for example, conservative management. I know there's been some case series published, um, including um, places like France, you know, leaving the placenta in situ, even giving methotrexate, which in my mind I have trouble um, understanding why that would work. Mm. Um, and um, another colleague that was uh, telling me about a, uh, an Argentinian um, s surgeon who has had a lot of experience doing on-block resection uh, of some of these cases. So I don't really understand much of that. Do you, do you mind explaining some yeah, of those sure. things? Or? Yeah, so um, there, there are many options in terms of how you manage these uh, problems. And certainly in our experience in Western Australia, which is a state with uh, a very large surface area and patients may not come from the local um, area, our preference has been to move quickly towards a hysterectomy um, if there is evidence that there's ongoing bleeding, there's concern. Um, I am aware that uh, in Singapore there's a preference of leaving the placenta in situ and you can imagine that it's probably a bit easier for a patient in Singapore to get to their local hospital than it is for somebody in Mikathara yep. uh, or the Kimberleys to come down uh, when they're certainly bleeding because these patients require a lot of monitoring if, um, if that um, management option is taken. Uh, on block resections, again, I think that's going to be very much dependent on um, local expertise. Uh, my concern is that if you do this, you're, you're just delaying and causing potentially a greater problem in the future. But again, it's one of those uh, surgical options that one can consider if it is uh, extremely desirable to preserve a patient's fertility. Uh, but um, a lot of counselling will need to be undertaken if that path was undertaken. Can, can I just ask you to clarify, so what, are, what do they mean by on-block resection? So is this, this only really apply to sort of like... Um, they like actually surgically excising the myometrium that's been invaded yes. and then stitching the uterus back together and, yeah. and so you, you sort of have like a partial uterus left behind. Is yeah, that, yeah. And in my mind, that's what I'm sort of thinking of. Is that, is that what it actually yeah. means? So, so how does that make you feel when you think about that? And then, <laughs> and then what can happen? So you're saying that um, it just creates new problems. So does that just mean that they have a recurrent accretion in the next pregnancy if they try and become fertile or do that's they actually have bleeding? That's right. So any surgical scar that you put on the uterus, uh, as, as we know, the more cesarean section someone has, the more likely that they're going to have a placenta accrete or a morbidly accurate um, placenta. Um, so you're creating a potential uh, area where there's going to be a site or, no, uh, or focus for future abnormal placentation. Right, okay. So I guess if someone was desperate to um, have further children, this is... Um, you know, something they would be attractive to them, but I'm not sure whether many centres offer it outside um, South America. Correct. And and just an aside, so the South Americans have the, the highest um, caesarean rate in the world, don't they? And so that's probably why they've developed a lot of expertise in this area. Is that? Yeah. Have you ever spoken to anyone who uh, from that part of the world who does this? Um, no, I haven't. No, no, neither have I. No. All right. Now, um, so we've already talked about um, using manual aortic compression, you know, compressing the aorta with your fist is a sort of rescue uh, when the patient's um, uh, facing cardiovascular collapse. But um, some centres do use interventional radiology, um, and I know that we haven't had a lot of experience here, but that doesn't mean that um, it isn't very successful in some other places. So what's your thoughts on that? So the, so the, the things that I've heard being used are, you know, traditionally sort of prophylactic in, 
uh, intra-iliac artery balloons, and um, more recently, sort of this new um, Reboa or retrograde, uh, was it retrograde endovascular balloon occlusion of the aorta, which has been described before. But mm. I think there are some centres that have uh, written up their case series when they've used it in these in this uh, type of surgery as well. Yeah. So, um, th- in fact, this leads to the very important point about management of these patients. Preparation is the key. Preparation by having a multidisciplinary team, preparation of the patient, making sure that they uh, have a satisfactory hemoglobin and their iron stores are adequate. Uh, preparation just prior to surgery includes considering whether one has to do cystoscopy and insert ureter extents to identify the ureters a bit easier, but also to image what's happening inside the bladder before one starts the laparotomy or the caesarean section. Preparation could also include, if you're really worried, um, the use of a, a different um, interventional radiology techniques that you've, um, that you've highlighted, uh, iliac catheterization or putting a balloon inside the aorta. That comes down to, again, the whole issue of what is available in your local organisation. Um, iliac balloons or iliac catheters are not without problems and certainly there have been case reports of uh, patients having significant harm related to having iliac balloons put in prophylactically prior to these type of procedures yeah, I've heard that. And, um, and migration of these balloons in the wrong place etc. So it's not without harm because the interventional radiology labs often away from the um, or the catheter labs away from the actual theatre yep. uh, and transporting the patients uh, may be a bit of an issue. I've had some experience with uh, iliac balloons. I think they work well, um, but because of uh, where we are, we don't have access to that. We've grown accustomed to actually working without them. Um, in our hands, we can identify the uterines fairly easily if we had to, uh, and we can uh, put a ligand clip on the uterines at the time of the laparotomy and, and hysterectomy if we had to. Or you resort to the other methods, such as uh, aortic cable compression, uh, rather than um, a balloon within the aorta. Uh, again, we have no access to that, so um, we have developed the techniques that are suitable for our institution. All right, now one of the other things uh, that I did have written down here, which maybe we should have mentioned or discussed a bit earlier, but, we've, um, you know, but I'll try and catch you on now. So wh- what about the patient who has um, just has an accreta or even maybe um, just has the suspicion of an accreta, so they have a uh, percent of previa overlying an, an old Caesar scar, but um, it's sort of uns- unclear whether they do have an accreta or not. Um, you know, some of these patients uh, make me more nervous than the ones where we know or we're sort of sure that they are an accreta because um, the plan is often to, in these situations to try and remove the percenter, mm. and that's when things can go really bad. Mm. Um, but if someone does have a, you know, very, well, I, I struggle to know whether this is a correct or not, a, a mild accreta or just some. Um, mildly adherent and uh, what sort of things can you do is can you over sew it or put battery balloons on and preserve the uterus in these sort of more mild um, instances yeah so I, I guess if you think about um, the situation of somebody who presents with a postpartum bleed not related to a caesarean section and have a, um, a retained placenta it's not uncommon that uh, these are sometimes morbidly, what we call morbidly adherent and we need to do a manual removal and I certainly yep. remember doing that in my registrar days uh, and you're trying to find that cleavage plane between the placenta and you're pulling up bits of placenta and cotyledons uh, piecemeal. Yeah. And you can imagine that uh, in that situation you get away with it most of the time. Um, and, uh, and you can put a battery balloon in that situation to tamponade the bed of the um, uterus. So one could then say uh, the time of caesarean section for a presumed accreta and there's uh, 
Um, even without the oxytocin, there's some placental separation already, and all of a sudden their placenta is in your hands. Um, then, yes, there are those options, and people have certainly described using a number of different techniques to control bleeding from the placental bed. That being uh, things like putting sutures where one thinks it's bleeding, uh, putting in the battery balloon, um, and other options that, uh, that I'm no longer familiar with, but I'm sure that there are packs that one can use um, to actually put on there uh, to try and control the bleeding at the time, yep. and then waiting and seeing what happens. Okay, that's good. So, um, and I actually did even read recently a case report in uh, Japan where they, um, they, uh, I think they put a uh, battery balloon in with some packs that were soaked in tranexamic acid and uh, and uh, some other um, uh, hemostatic agents. Um, but that was, that was a case series of one or two patients. Yes, there's another case series where they've actually used um, uh, qu quick plot is what it's called. Right, so yeah, quick yeah, plot is uh, carried by the US Marines and the yeah. armed forces uh, as a way of uh, treating trauma. And they've certainly used that also inside the uterine cavity. I'm aware of that. Uh, right, so okay. So, yeah. so I, just thinking in my mind, I'm not sure how that preserves fertility. So I'm not sure what that will do to the endometrium. Um, I have no and, idea. Uh, the likelihood of a future pregnancy. But anyway, that's uh, yes. fascinating to know. I suppose, I guess, if you don't have the um, skilled team to perform a sort of you know, hysterectomy, that might be something you could buy time with. Yes. Anyway, right. Okay, thank you very much, Yi, for... Um, for sharing your experience and your thoughts. Um, is, is there anything else that you think we should discuss that we haven't mentioned? Um, I think no. we've co comprehensively covered most things. I think we have, and as I said, the take-home messages are being prepared for these type of patients. Yep, and I think um, communication, I know this is, we discussed this in the previous talk where we talked more about the anaesthetic and um, uh, theatre staff um, approach to things, but knowing each other by name, being, uh, uh, you know, good at communicating and explain and explaining what's going on and keeping being vigilant um i, I reckon those are the keys so absolutely i think uh, most of the time we do that pretty well yeah um if you make the effort all right thanks again Yi. thanks for listening everyone please go to the itunes menu and subscribe to the show if you like it Write a review, this will also help us uh, get seen by other listeners on the iTunes menu. If you're also interested, please go to our website at www.opsandgynequickcare.org where there will be lots of show notes and links to uh, interesting videos related to the topic that you've just listened to. See you again next time.